All right, we are in the book of 1 John. 1 John, starting there this morning. This is really just going to be an introduction. We're just going to be looking at the first four verses. If you don't have a Bible, pick up that blue Bible underneath the seat around you and open that book to page 1021, and that will bring you to John's epistle, 1 John. We'll be looking at the first four verses. Now, I'm just going to jump right into some background information this morning for you to, just to help you understand this book a little bit better before we look at these first four verses. Although identified by name in the letter, John is the author. John is the author of this book, specifically the Apostle John. He is one of the twelve who followed Jesus closely during his earthly ministry. And this book, written on, has been credited by the ancient church as written by John, along with 2nd and 3rd John. They follow 1st John, so you have 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, along with the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. He's one of the four Gospels. And also the very last book in our Bibles, Revelation. John is the author of all of these New Testament books. John is listed, just by way of reminder as one of the twelve apostles in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 10, verse 2, there it is written, the names of the twelve apostles apostles are these, first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. And then it goes on to list the remaining apostles, John being the brother of James, the son of Zebedee. Mark adds this, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, verse 14, and he, that is Jesus Christ, appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. We're looking at the message of apostleship because I've titled this message the apostolic message. The apostolic message, which hopefully will become clear to you as we move through the text and introduce the first four verses of 1 John. The word apostle in the Bible simply means sent one. Sent one. Or a delegate. A delegate. Maybe you don't know what that word means. It means someone chosen to represent or given the authority to act on behalf of another person. In this case, the apostles were acting on behalf of or representing Jesus Christ. He sent them to proclaim a message. As an apostle, John was a chosen ambassador or representative of the gospel, an official commissioner of Christ, a special messenger authorized by Jesus Christ. That is what it means when we say they were apostles. It is also worth noting that of the twelve apostles, three were often invited to share special moments or events with Jesus that the others were not allowed. Sometimes Bible scholars refer to this group within the twelve apostles as the inner circle. The inner circle. And there were three of them. Peter, James, and his brother, John. John had a very, very close relationship with the Lord Jesus. He refers to him, in fact, in the Gospel of John that he wrote, 
he even refers to himself several times as the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how he referred to himself, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's sometimes been referred to as the apostle of love. Now, when was this book written? 1 John was written in the first century, so the end of the first century. So somewhere from 1 to 99 in that period of time. Once you step over, now you're into the second century. So 101 would be the second century. So somewhere near the end of the first century, maybe 85 to 95 A.D. Approximately 60 years now after Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. So 60 years has now passed. John was an old he is man by this time. And he is, at this point in history, the last surviving apostle of Jesus Christ. The last surviving apostle. Even in the late stages of this man's life, he continued to minister and give direction to the churches that were in Ephesus, in Asia Minor, the area located in Asia Minor. And he wrote several of the, several of the letters that we have in the New Testament, like the one that we are going to look at this morning, 1 John. Now, I want to point out that Paul, the Apostle Paul, in the book of Acts, Decades before John 1 was written, decades before John 1 was written, gave a warning to the elders of the church in Ephesus. And remember that John is writing to the churches in and around Ephesus. So we're going to jump back in time before 1 John was written and just take a quick look at something Paul said in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 31. You can flip there or you can look up on the screen. It will come up in a second. Beginning in verse in the church, Paul writes this to the elders in the church in Ephesus. Pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock. The flock is a reference to the church. They're referred to as sheep. You have a flock of sheep. So he's saying pay special attention to the people of God, to the flock, to the church in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which He obtained with His own blood. Verse 29, I know that after my departure, after I leave, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. This is a word picture, right? Wolves would come in. A shepherd would have to watch over the flock of the sheep because they were always subject to the attack of wolves who would want to come in and destroy them, eat them. And he says, Paul, to the elders, the overseers of the church of God, be careful. When I leave, I know wolves are going to come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves. That means from within your ranks, from even those who identify themselves as sheep of the flock will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Verse 31, Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. With tears. Paul was concerned. Paul was concerned that wolves, those who would twist the truth, would come into the church and even rise up from within the church and tear apart God's people. 
Now, why do I bring this up? Well, one conclusion that I think we can draw and you will draw as we move through 1 John is the contents of 1 John, based on the contents of 1 John, is Paul's warning in Acts has now become a reality. It has become a reality by the end of the first century. That's what you're going to end up seeing. Paul's warning that wolves would come in is now a reality that John is having to deal with and address. In part, 1 John is then written that had infiltrated false teaching and false teachers that had infiltrated the church and also to identify and affirm what is true Christianity. They were perverting the truth. And so John had to lay down and establish the truth that Christians might know the difference. As an apostle of Jesus Christ, his words carried a high level of authority and credibility with the early church, and so should they with us. In regard to the contents of First John that support the conclusion that I just gave you that he is writing to combat some false teaching and false teachers, let me give you a sampling only from 1 John. For instance, in 1 John chapter 2, and this is all by way of introduction before we look at the first four verses. 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 19, here John writes, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Let me just pause there very quickly. Antichrist is anybody against Christ. Okay, so this is not specifically the Antichrist that comes in the end, but anybody who would rise up against Christ, pervert Christ, distort Christ, go after Christ, is an Antichrist. That's what he's saying. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. Verse 19, They, who, these Antichrists, went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. John's just drawing attention to the fact that there were some within the church who have now left, who have separated themselves from the church of God and moved out from under apostolic authority and are nothing but antichrist. And by that they have proved that they were never really true, genuine, authentic Christians in the first place. That's what John is saying. And he's addressing them. Then he says in 1 John 2.26, I write these things to you. I write this epistle, this letter, about those who are trying. It continues to be a problem in the church, but this has been a problem, and it continues to be a problem has been of God. People are deceived of God. People are deceived, and deceivers continue to infiltrate churches, being deceived and deceiving. People are confused, and many do not know or understand the truth as they should. 1 John 2.23, he says, No one who denies the Son has the Father. No one. Why is he bringing that up? There are clearly those within that community that were around at the time denying the Son. He goes on to say in 2.22, who is the liar? Wow, those are strong words, John. But this is a serious situation. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? 
That's who the liar is. They can say whatever they want. They can, they can call themselves whatever they want. As the apostle of Jesus Christ, I'm telling you, they are liars. He goes on to say in 1 John 2, 4, Whoever says, I know Him, that is, I know Jesus Christ, but does not keep His commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. What you're going to notice about John as we go through John is he paints everything in just black and white. He just lays it down. He makes it very clear. There is no question about what he is saying. But there was questions in the church about who was a Christian and who wasn't a Christian and these men who were twisting the truth and, and not living according to the Word and yet claiming that they knew Jesus Christ. And John says, they are liars. 1 John 2.6 Whoever says he abides in him, that is in Christ, he ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. In other words, if they don't walk and follow after Christ and yet make a claim to abide in Christ, there's a problem. Because if they abide in Christ, they also ought to walk after Him, follow after Him, model Him, Imitate Him as we read from Ephesians 2. 5, that is, this morning. 1 John 2.9 Whoever says He is in the light. So this is what they may be saying. I'm in the light. I'm a believer of Jesus Christ. But He hates His brother. He is still in the darkness. He is still in the darkness. They can say whatever they want to say. But that doesn't make it true. Finally, 1 John 4.20, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. That's the Apostle. The Apostle John. The Apostle of love. False teaching and false teachers brought and bring confusion to the church, beloved, and they lead people astray. The Apostle John not only wrote to confront Air in any of its forms, but also to establish, clearly establish the truth, to proclaim the apostolic message so that true Christians could have assurance. These Christians were all over the place. They were being ripped to and fro. And he wanted true believers to have assurance of their eternal life, to know what it means to be a Christian that they might walk in the light. He even says that in 1 John 5.13, I, Son of God, that you may know that you are the Son of God, eternal life. That's why I'm writing these things to you. Eternal life. That's why I'm writing these things to you. By them you will know whether or not you have eternal life. Regardless of what... Now... Now, we don't know the exact content because John doesn't tell us of the false teaching. We don't know it and confusing the church. We do know and confusing the church. We do know, based on historical evidence, that there was a worldly philosophy at the time, during John's writings, during this time in history, that later became known as Gnosticism. 
Gnosticism. We're not going to go into what is Gnosticism right now this morning. But part of this philosophy was the erroneous idea, that means incorrect error, bad idea, that all matter was evil. This is all you have to really get. You have to understand that all matter was evil and that spirit was good. Matter is evil, spirit is good. And so because the culture had been indoctrinated with this Greek philosophy, as they became Christians, or as they entered into the church, or as they associated with the church, they brought this erroneous thinking or worldly philosophy into Christianity and tried to merge them, which is always a bad thing to do, beloved. And so... Some of them said, based on this philosophy, matter is evil, spirit is good, that Christ then only appeared to actually be in the flesh matter. In other words, He was not actually human flesh, but He only appeared to be a human being. He was only spirit. Why would they say that? Well, if matter is evil and spirit is good, he couldn't have been true human flesh. He could not have been an he couldn't have been true human flesh. He could not have been an actual human being. He only appeared to us in that way. That was one problem. Another erroneous view like it, but slightly different, was promoted by another man. I think his name is pronounced Serentius. He said that Jesus was an earthly man of Nazareth. And Christ was a heavenly deity. So you have Jesus, he's separating the two. Jesus is an earthly man, born of Nazareth. Here's Christ, a heavenly deity. This heavenly deity descended upon Jesus at his baptism and left Jesus right before he was crucified on the cross. As a result, in Son of God. There's a lot of problems with the Son of God. A lot of problems. And you, I can't explain them all this morning, but a lot of problems. And you, I can't explain them all this morning, but understanding the background, which often Christians don't, they don't look any further, they just read the text, and they don't really understand what, was the, what spurred this text on, what, what was going on that caused the, the letter to be written in the first place. And as you study the Word of God, here's what you'll find out. Most of the time, it was false teaching. It was a false teacher. It was a false philosophy that had invaded and infiltrated the church and the apostles, the prophets, would write to address that issue. And so if you're not aware of what the issue was in the first place, sometimes you read it and you go, what is he so upset about? What is he talking about even? But once you start to tap into what was going on, then it all starts to make sense. For instance, knowing what I just told you, this idea that flesh is evil, material is evil, spirit is good. When you read 1 John 4, 2, maybe it's been strange to you that he stresses this, but he says, by this you know the Spirit of God. Here's how you know. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. What are you talking about? Of course He came in the flesh. No, see, you missed it. Because there were those denying that He actually came in the flesh that He actually had a human body, that He was actually one of us. 
a man born of a woman. Or in another letter of John's, his second epistle, 2 John 7, there he says, same thought, same idea. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. You even see this in the first chapter of John's Gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, that Gospel there in John 1.14. Material flesh. Material flesh became flesh. Material flesh. And He dwelt among us and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So I just want to expose that to you, give you some background so you begin to understand. We'll start to make sense as we move through this epistle. Additionally, and this is important, the idea that matter was inherently evil and only spirit was good had the potential to have a serious impact on people's ethics and morals. False idea that may have been circulating, we believe was circulating, the false idea that may have been circulating, we believe was circulating at the end of the first century when John wrote 1 John, was it didn't matter what you did in the flesh or in the body since it was evil anyway and it had no impact on one's spirit which was pure and good. Now, you're going to figure this out real quick. You'll start to get the link. So if the spirit is good based on this erroneous philosophy, and the flesh is evil to practice immorality or sin in the body was of no real consequence. In other words, as a Christian, I could practice sexual immorality and it doesn't really matter because the flesh is evil anyway and my spirit remains good. They are two distinct things. Wow. That's interesting. So do what you want. Do what you want. You're still a Christian. Sin, it doesn't matter. Based on this philosophy. But for the Christian, this cannot be true. It cannot be true. And the Apostle John addresses that. He has something to say about that. You are being deceived or I'm even afraid that you might have been deceived, or to prevent you from being deceived, let me make it very clear. By this we know that we know Him. If we keep His commandments, He who says He knows Him and does not keep His commandments, He's a liar. And the truth is not in Him. So as I said, this will be a book that helps define for us, makes it very crystal clear, what does it really mean to be a Christian? What does it really mean to have fellowship with the one true God? What does that really mean? And he will tell us. Now, we've looked at that. Let's look at the first four verses of 1 John. Finally, we're there. 1 John 1, 1 through 4. John writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you 
the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This morning, you can look inside of your bulletin if you're not already on the left-hand side. You will find an outline. We're going to consider three truths about the apostolic message so that we would not be deceived, beloved, that we would not be deceived, but that we would have fellowship with God. And these three truths are the message is Christ, the message is certain, and the message is critical. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Hope you're still with me. The first one is the message is Christ. The message is Christ. What was it that the apostles proclaimed or declared to others? What was their message? Was it their own ideas? Their own philosophies? Their own thinking? Were they just parroting worldly philosophies that they had picked up by those who were so wise in society? No, beloved. Their message was centered on Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. The person of Christ, the words of Christ, the work of Christ. That was their message. Look back at the text with me. It says in verse 1, "...that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the Word..." Of life. The word of life. You see that phrase there? Now we know in verse 3, he picks back up this thought, and we'll talk about that in a second, because he pauses in verse 2 to help us understand the term life. We'll get to that. But in verse 3, he picks back up and he says, What we have seen and we, we have heard, we proclaim. So they're proclaiming something, specifically this word of life. And this entire phrase here, the word of life, has been understood by many to be a reference to the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, maybe in your translation, the word, word, is actually capitalized. It may be. It is not in ESV, but in many translations it it is. And that makes it personal. It's referring to a person. Because some Bible scholars view it as being the same way John used this term word as he used it in his gospel in the first chapter, where I said earlier three times in the first verse he refers to the word, and again one more time in verse 14 of chapter 1, the word, and clearly when you read through chapter 1, it is unmistakable the word is Jesus Christ who became flesh and dwelt among us. Fine. But, In 1 John, though, I want to show you something. I believe word here is being used differently by John. Not in the same way that he used it in his gospel. It is actually being used in an impersonal way. In an impersonal way, and I don't think it should be capitalized. And by the way, that's a translation decision. There is no distinction in the original manuscripts, Greek, that says this should be translated. That's a tran- or translated with a capital W, making it personal or referring to a person. 
That's the translator's decision. And as you can see in our ESV Bibles, they have left it uncapitalized. So, I think it's being used differently, but ultimately, I still believe this is a reference, this term is a reference to Jesus Christ, but I want to show you exactly what I mean by all that. So, a couple of things. First, when we look at 1 John, he does not say what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked upon, what we have touched with our hands concerning the Word. He doesn't say that. And the term that he uses in John 1, his Gospel, is the Word. It is the Word that was with God from the beginning. It is the Word that became flesh and dwelt among us. He actually uses the the term the Word of life. Second, in verse 2, in verse 2 of 1 John, and I was talking about this a second ago, John stops. He stops in the middle of his writing as he's talking about what they have beheld concerning the word of life. He stops and he begins to explain something about what he just said. And then he'll pick back up his thought in verse 3. So let's look at verse 2. I'll show you what I'm talking about beginning in verse 1 so that we can feel the flow of John's message here. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. Pause. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. Beloved, as we see in the text here, it is the life, the life that was made manifest. That simply means to appear, to become visible. Maybe your translation even says appeared. The life was made manifest, became visible. It was the life which was with the Father and then appeared to us. He means the apostles. To us, the apostles. Life here, the word, the term life, is clearly a reference to Jesus Christ. So, just stick with me. Additionally, both John's Gospel and 1 John reveal that life, true life, eternal life, is in Christ. We see that in John 1.4. We see that in 1 John 5.11-12. And that is why John writes in that particular chapter of 1 John that whoever has the Son, guess what they have? They have eternal life. Because they have the One who is life. And he who does not have the Son does not have eternal life. True life, beloved, is in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Now look back at verse 3 and we'll put this all together. After John explains, he pauses, he says, Man, we have seen and heard and touched and beheld something concerning the word of life. Pause. The life. As he begins to explain that. Now he comes back in verse 3 and he says, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. We proclaim also to you. Okay, what did John and the other apostles proclaim? 
Well, the text says, they proclaimed what? That which, okay? Not who. It doesn't say that who. It says that which. They have proclaimed that which they had seen and heard concerning the word of life. All right. The term life, as I've shown you from the text, from the passage, from verse 2, clearly is a reference to Jesus Christ. The term word, although some will understand it to be Jesus, being used the same way in John 1 of the Gospel of John, I don't think it is being used that way here. I think it is simply being used to mean message. Message. Because it can be used that way. So we have the message of life or the message of Christ. Or to say it another way, the Gospel message. The message about life in Christ. Christ then, beloved, is the subject of the Word or the message that the apostles are proclaiming. This message includes His person, His words, and His very works, His deeds. Okay, but wait. John says in verse 1 that they looked upon and touched with their hands the Word of life. The Word of life. It does say that. And doesn't that sound like John is talking about just simply a physical person, not a message about a person? It does sound like that. It tends to lean that way, except we have this explanation of life in verse 2 that says, the life is what's describing Jesus, and the Word is the message about Him. So, How do we put this together? How do you touch a message? Well, we need to understand that Christ is not just God's messenger that came to reveal to us through His words and deeds who Christ is and through His or who God is, but He is literally God's message. He is not just the messenger for God, He is God's message. They cannot be separated. Therefore, when the apostles touched Jesus, they touched the very message of life. When they saw Jesus, they saw with their eyes the very message of life. When they heard Jesus, they heard Him who spoke forth the very message of life. One writer says it this way, Jesus is both the preacher of God's message and the message itself. The message and the person are ultimately identical. The eternal life, beloved, that God has graciously provided for sinners has been revealed in and through the historical person that we identify as Jesus Christ. He is the very message of God to us. Beloved, Christianity, I know you know this, but it's worth saying again, it's all about a person. It's all about a person. Not some set of rules. Not about a man. But about the person, Jesus Christ. That particular man, the Son of God. It's message, the Christian message. It's hope. It's realities. It's truth. 
all center in on and flow out of this one person, Jesus Christ, who is and was and remains and will continue to be the very Word of life, the embodiment of the Gospel message. The apostolic message, beloved, is Christ. Because there is no greater message. Not worldly philosophy, not human ideas, but it was and it remains to be Christ. What message are we listening to? What message do we listen to? And what message are we proclaiming? Worldly philosophies, our own human thinking, how distorted it is. We need to hear, embrace, and proclaim the apostolic message because it is the message of Christ. How about the next point? The message is certain. The message is certain. Beloved, how can we be confident that the message of Christ, the word of life that the apostles proclaimed and wrote down as recorded for us in the New Testament that you're holding maybe in your lap, is true, accurate, and reliable? How do we know? Well, according to the text, it's because they were there. (laughs) They were there. They were with Christ. They were witnesses to His very life. 1 John 1, 1. Look back at at it with me. He says there, "...that which was from the beginning, which we, the apostles, have heard, which we have seen with our eyes." which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the Word of life. We, as I said before, we represent the apostles. You remember who they are? We talked about it at the beginning. Those who were chosen to become witnesses of who? Christ! To become witnesses of Christ and the Gospel and assigned by Christ to be His official messengers to proclaim the Word of life, to proclaim Him to proclaim Him. And here John says, we have heard. Remember what he's up against. We're 60 years outside of Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. And there's a bunch of yahoos running around making a lot of claims about Christianity and Christ. And John says, "Uh, wait just a minute. We, the apostles, were there. Wait just a minute. We saw Him. We heard Him. We touched Him. We beheld Him. You wait just a minute. He says, we have heard, it speaks of hearing the the divine words of Christ, beloved. When Christ spoke, God spoke. And they heard those words with their ears. They heard firsthand the message of Jesus Christ, the message of life. One writer puts it this way, the verb that's used there, that's translated have heard, it involves all the utterances and activities of the speaker conveying his message to them. We have heard. The expression embodies the training which John and his fellow apostles received from Jesus. Remember the apostles that walked with Christ. For three years. He goes on to say, we have seen with our eyes. Not only did we hear, but we saw 
All of our senses are involved. They saw Jesus up close and personal, beloved. Any of you seen Jesus up close and personal? Don't say yes. If you do, we'll have to talk afterwards. You haven't. Okay, you haven't. Not in this way. They saw him up close and personal, not from a distance, not through the eyes of someone else. They saw him. They saw his miracles. They saw him die on the cross. And they saw him again after he died alive. They saw him. They saw his love, his care, his wisdom, his perfect life, his sacrifice, his power. They saw it with their own eyes. They were there. John goes on to say, that which we heard, that which we saw, that which we looked upon. That sounds redundant. Didn't you just say you saw Him? That which we looked upon. It does sound redundant, but when you look up the Greek for the word that is translated here, looked upon, it means to closely examine, to closely examine or to perceive, to understand So one writer says the verb means this, an intelligent looking upon which interprets the significance of that which is beheld. In other words, they saw and understood. They came to understand ultimately the truth and the reality about who Jesus really was, the salvation of God for sinners. The salvation of God for sinners. The salvation of God for sinners. The Lord of all. They beheld Him. And then it says, which we have touched with our hands. They knew, and I think this is a direct attack, knew Jesus was not just a spirit. They knew Jesus was not just a spirit floating around, appearing as a human being. They touched Him. They were intimately familiar with Him. They knew He was a man born of the flesh, born of a woman, born of God. He was God clothed in human flesh. God revealed to us. One writer says this, His witness, that is John's witness, unlike that of his opponents, nor afterthought. He's not making this stuff up. Long and accept people's erroneous.